Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we'll be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with a substance use challenge and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we had a conversation with Hanir Hernandez and Tim Sabers on our team about their experiences navigating recovery as members of the Latino community. Without further ado, let's get talking. Uh, so my name is Tim Sobers. I use he and his pronouns. I uh, work for the Center of Excellence, of course. My focus is on workforce development. But um, my kind of lived experience background is with mental health and substance use, both having caused uh, struggles for me in, in the past. However, uh, these days they are not a part of my life or story that I care to center any longer. And so I don't use language like being a person in recovery or, uh, you know, even even kind of doing some exploration of do I consider my lived experience relevant enough to even identify with it anymore. Um, but my background, kind of my more, from a more cultural context, is, is that I am from Guatemala. I'm from Guatemala City, Guatemala. Um, and I was adopted uh, when I was a little less than a year old. I was adopted into a white family in the suburbs of Milwaukee. And so kind of in that cultural context, I was raised, you know, within within uh, white culture. And I know that there's a lot of kind of laughing around that doesn't really mean anything, um, but it does, you know, have some specific uh, cultural context to it. Um, and particularly being adopted has played a large role in kind of why I was struggling with mental health and substance use to begin with uh, and has played a role in how I've navigated through those challenges as I've gotten older um, as well as really recognizing that there's disconnect from kind of both sides of my cultural heritage and that I'm, you know, might have all the cultural context to engage with and pick up all the cues from white folks around me. But because I don't look white enough, they're never, they don't ever view me as a white person. And then when I go into Latinx spaces, I look like I fit in there, but I don't have any of the cultural references or the cultural cues to be able to really engage and connect with that community. And so I've experienced a lot of rejection uh, from from people who were raised in the culture, um, not really wanting to engage with somebody who was adopted and not really being seen as a member of either community and having to navigate that uh, has definitely played a role in how I've um, gone through my substance use and mental health kind of journey. I am Janet Hernandez. Thank you for that, Tim. I am from Puerto Rico, and I arrived in the U.S. in 1968, so it's been a long time. And um, I arrived here against my will because no one asked me if I wanted to go or not. Uh, but also the the experience of Puerto Rico and, and Puerto Ricans is grounded and the fact that Puerto Rico is a U.S. colony, was invaded in 1898 by the U.S., and the U.S. is still there. And in 1917, 1914, Puerto Ricans were asked if they wanted to be U.S. citizens. Puerto Ricans said no. In 1917, U.S. citizenship was imposed on Puerto Ricans. And so there's that colonial relationship that brings me and my family and countless other families to the U.S. Um, to live, to work, uh, right? And so I do consider myself um, a person in long-term recovery. 
As a matter of fact, on Wednesday of this week, it will be 36 years since I last used a drug, including alcohol. Um, and for me, that's significant in many different ways. And it is connected to who I am as a Puerto Rican man, how I identify, and how I am viewed in my community. What are my responsibilities, both ethical and moral responsibilities to the folks that I work with? You know, thinking about when we first arrived here, um, my mom, we didn't have any luggage. My mom brought us here with only an address. And we didn't know the language. We didn't know anyone here. Just an address of a friend of hers. And this is 1968. What was happening in the inner cities um, was um, so-called riots, really rebellions by people of color, primarily African-American, Black, Latino folk who were not wanted. And that was my introduction to the U.S., being called the spick, being called many other names, uh, curfew, National Guard out, police out, German shepherds out. Um, that was my introduction to, to the U.S., our introduction to the U.S., but we were not wanted here. And um, I went to school where I never learned anything about our folk, um, about my culture, about my community. That I learned at home. And I knew that we were not from here, that we were not wanted here, and it was dangerous to be here. And so growing up with that, um, type of education and rejection um, definitely contributed to me joining a gang, using substances, developing a problem with substances and other mental health issues. Um, yet it has also informed who I am as a person in recovery, because getting into recovery, I went to a treatment facility called Casa Don Pedro Alviso Campos, and Don Pedro Alviso Campos was graduated in 1917 from Harvard Law. He spoke eight languages. He was Puerto Rican, Black, um, and president of the Nationalist Party. And the, the facility where I went to, the treatment was grounded in who we are as Latino men, who we are as the Puerto Rican community, and what that history of colonization has done to us physically, spiritually, emotionally, all of that. So my, my recovery is grounded in an understanding of what culture means to me and, and my community. Um, I am much more than just a person in recovery. That's only a small part of who I am. It used to be a, a huge thing in my identity. It is no longer that because I have many other um, areas that I identify with. Having said that, in my community, people know me, particularly people who use substances. And when they speak to me, um, they speak to me in Spanish, which I am fluent in. They talk to me about my experience. They talk about their experience living in this country. And so I, I need to constantly figure out what that means and how I use that experience that I have to be able to help other people. And in, other, and in many other ways, it helps me to engage with people at the community level in that way. Um, 
So I'm, I'm very fortunate and, and privileged in that way because, you know, I didn't believe that I was going to live to be 18, never mind to be 58. Right? Uh, first time I was arrested, I was 11 years old. So you can only imagine my trajectory is not um, that usual for most people in society, right? So I get to think about that. I get to do some work in this space um, with great people at the center of excellence and otherwise. And I get to continue to learn about these processes. Thank you, Hanir. Um, something that I, I heard from both of you was a, a theme of rejection and experiencing that, feeling that. How would you say that influenced your initial like, relationship with substances? I, I can start us off here, right? I, I think that, again, when you, when you grow up in a country that's not your own, and you're constantly being told lies about your people and other people of color, including Black folk, Asian folk, Native American people, all of that. In the history books, I, I, I went to, you see me moving my hands? I went to school where they made me to sit on my hands for hours because I moved my hands to them. And so, you know, I, I developed this sense of being rebellious at a very young age. I have never said the Pledge of Allegiance. I had to stand up for it because they called my mom, but I never, I never recited it. I never did any of that. I, I was writing something recently in in the school where I went. They had they had um, um, dances, right? And the, the dances were. Um, polka and, and crap like that that I didn't identify with. And in my family, we were dancing salsa, merengue, right, listening to music. And I, I would not pledge allegiance to the flag. That's my flag back there. I would not pledge allegiance to the flag because I knew what was happening. As soon as I left the schoolyard, my people were getting hurt by the police, by the National Guard and being arrested. So why would, and they had patches with American flags. So why would I say that that's my flag? And so that, for me, that was profound. I, I, I had difficulty relating to other people. And so as soon as I tried a substance, that did something to me. Um, and I tried alcohol when I was seven years old um, and tobacco around that age as well. Um, but that you know, did something to my ability to talk to other people, to relate, to sing, to dance, to feel happy. Um, and as I grow older, it enabled me to do that. Um, so it was central to who I had become as a, as a young man, right? Now, as a young man, as a kid, without a fully developed brain, right? Okay. <laughs> Today, I know all of that. But, but back then, I, I didn't understand any of that. And I understood that to be a man was to drink. To be a man was to smoke, right? All of those elements within cultures that teach you some very messed up things about who you are and who you're supposed to be. And all of that became part of my identity. Again, to the point where I believed that I wasn't gonna live to be 18. I'm from a community that has, um, in terms of life expectancy, the longest life expectancy in the US, how do you convince a kid that they're not going to live to be 18, 
You do that in many different ways. And so um, drugs did that for me, and it numbed my ability to be empathetic towards other people. So I hurt a lot of people in that process, including my familia, including folks from my community, right? Those are things that I, that I think of constantly. Yeah, I would say my experience was a little bit, a little bit different, but kind of led to the same place. It was almost inverted in that because I was raised essentially completely removed from Latinx communities within where I lived, I was never connected to them. And I also just want to, I want to kind of just name that there is no, you know, like grudge holding towards my parents. I try, you know, they did the best they could. We had Spanish language tutors. They wanted us to be in Spanish language immersion schools and be part of the community. And those resources just never materialized. And it, it wasn't for their lack of trying. It was for lack of the resources being accessible and even existing. Um, so they really wanted us to be connected to our culture. My brother and sister are also adopted. Um, and we, we just weren't able to be. And as I grew up, I didn't see myself as a Latino person. Um, I saw myself as part of this family. There was... I was raised in a very uh, conservative town, you know, this, that there, there was that big idea of like, well, we don't see race. We're all the same, all of that. And like, growing up, I didn't know any different. And so I bought into it and was like, well, we're all the same. So I saw myself as the same as everybody else around me. But because I was adopted, there was an added layer of, you have to prove it. You know, if you're going to fit into this white mm-hmm. space, you need to be the, the whitest active one there. You need to have all, you know, the perfect manners. You need to have all the cultural references. You need to know exactly how to navigate these spaces and do it well so that you can assimilate into them. And I was young enough that I didn't know that that's what I was doing. But looking back, I'm like, oh, I see that the goal here was was assimilation rather than recognition that I was different and that was worthy of being celebrated. And I, of course, never achieved that because that's just never going to happen. Um, you know, I, I could be acting as white as possible, but... Those white people are going to let you know that you're not a white person. <laughs> they don't want you in this space. Um, and so that happened very regularly to me. And I struggled a lot with understanding why that was happening. And it was such a such a difficult time to navigate through because even in my mind, when I visualized what I looked like, it wasn't the way I physically appeared. I really saw myself as a white person. And then I would see myself in the mirror and feel like a total disconnect from who that person is because it didn't match the culture I was raised in, the people I was around, the way I was acting, what my goals and ideals and values were, didn't match the way I looked and the way that I was told that I was supposed to be behaving in the communities I was supposed to be a part of. And so there was a real struggle there in in facing, you know, rejection from a space I really wanted to be a part of. And then as I got older, around, you know, 18, uh, I was 17 years old when I came out to my family as gay. And as I mentioned, very, very conservative folks, uh, there was not total rejection, but major, major disconnect. And so it was all of these rejections compounding on each other, you know, the fear of being rejected by my family kind of triggered this underlying experiences that I'd had of being put up for adoption, also feeling like, well, I've already lost one set of parents here that rejected me. I don't know that that's true. They could have put me up for adoption for whatever reason, but that was how I internalized it. And then I came out to my the, my family that raised me and was scared that they were going to reject me. And so it felt like I have the potential to lose two families here, four sets of parents that could all choose that they don't want me to be their kid. 
And these groups that I've been socialized in are telling me they don't want me around them, that I'm never going to fit in with them. The groups that I am, quote unquote, supposed to be a part of, you know, these Latinx communities don't want me as in their spaces because I don't speak the language or have the cultural references. Um, and so I'm just nowhere. I'm just floating. And I felt like I was a very fractured person who had no identity. Um, and so that led into a lot of self-harm and substance use, um, which didn't make me feel kind of more social or, or, or like I was doing things I was supposed to be doing. It made me feel nothing. Um, and so I really felt like feeling nothing, feeling numb, you know, potentially being unconscious or blacked out for several days or weeks at a time means that I don't have to feel like I'm a, a fractured, incoherent person. Um, and so I use, I was using substances to escape from a lot of those feelings. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, that was able to navigate through them eventually, but there was a lot of struggle, you know, even going through, uh, I went through all sorts of levels of medical model treatment and participated in 12 step and smart recovery, but in all of those spaces, and I always experienced this growing up, there was a desire to push me into these spaces that were given to me based on stereotypes and assumptions. Every time that I would go into these spaces, it was, do you need this in Spanish? Do you want to be part of the Latinx group? Um, you know, do you want to be over here? Do you want to be in that space or this space because of how you look and, and the fact that you've checked, you know, Hispanic Latino on this box and then having to go and say like, well, I don't know Spanish and I don't need to be a part of that group unless I have to be, because if I go there, they're going to tell me they don't want me there and I'm not going to get it. Um, and that has continued even, you know, in workspaces and educational spaces that, I still remember when I first went to college, they assigned me to the Latino Student Center. Uh, and then I got there and, you know, the, the the college advisor was, you know, speaking to me in Spanish and making jokes about our supposedly shared cultural upbringing that I had to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just want these classes scheduled. <laughs> and so it's always been frustrating because there's a desire to be in that community, but because I wasn't raised in it, when they make the assumption that you you are part of that community and then you say, like, I actually don't know that cultural reference. I've had people look me in the eye and be like, oh, you're a bad Latino. Like, why don't you know this? Why can't you speak Spanish back to me? Um, and it had to be like, but it, it wasn't my fault. You know, I wasn't asked to be removed from my culture. But the guilt and shame and like disconnection between, you know, all of those spaces is really what led me to use substances and then transition out of them. Um, but still, you know, when I went to work as a peer specialist, I was assigned to all the Latinx people because they just assumed that I would be able to work better with them and then had to come back and be like, I don't know the, I don't know these people. Um, and it's, it's just been difficult to be perceived in a lot of different ways like that and has, I think, led to some continued distress. Um, and I won't get into it now, but up until recently, over the past couple of years, I got to really reconnect with the transracial adoption community um, and learn more about like what that identity meant and educate myself. And that has really facilitated my growth into feeling more than ever, like I am a full, a complete person who understands myself. Thank you, you know, Tim. What you just said, Tim, makes me think about some experiences within my own family, right? Because growing up, as you said, I, I, I could not pass, and I didn't want to pass either, right? I, I, that's a that's a different thing for me personally. I, I didn't want to because I saw the hurt that was being imposed on, on, on my community, right? And so, but um, but I grew up with kids who were born here and that is a different experience, right? And I have many kids in my family who were born here. And um, 
the ones, nieces and nephews in my family who speak Spanish, primarily is because they, my, my mom was their babysitter when they were kids. And my mom refused, she lived here, right, for many, many years, but she refused to speak English. She understood it, but she, she didn't speak it. Um, she had, I don't know how she did it, but she had friends who, who spoke English and African-American and white friends and natural, they come to the house and eat and we would talk, but to like, they were clearly her friends, but she would never speak English. And anyway, my nieces and nephews who do speak some Spanish is it's because of my mom. And, um, I have a home in Puerto Rico, and so um, I built this so my family could come hang out, you know, that sort of thing. And on several occasions, I've taken groups of my nieces and nephews, not big groups, but four or five. And, um, and they know that if you ask them, what are you, they'll say I'm Puerto Rican. Um, but to your many points there, right, um, they say, yeah. But they don't know exactly what that means, right? And and it's difficult for me to see them struggle with that because I know what it means, right? Because um, I've always been back to the island, right? Not to live there, but to visit, to write, to... And um, I have friends who have gone back to the island because they were born here in the island and said, no, tú no eres Puerto Rican, you're not Puerto Rican. And so there's that level of rejection. So the kids in my family, when I've taken them there, um, they've taken some stuff in and you see them really excited and then many of them have come around and said, now I know what this means, Theo. Now I know what that means, right? So this piece on assimilation really robs people of identity. It robs people of self-esteem. It robs people of many different things. And in that push and pull in my own life towards assimilation, um, I felt that a lot of that stuff was robbed from me, um, stolen from me, right? Um, I, I think I can remember a summer where I refused to speak Spanish. <laughs> and, but I had to speak it to my mom, right? It's like, that's your, I would speak it only to the people where it was necessary. And when I look back on that, right, the, the, the stressors of that, and this is still going on today, right, of, of these young people. Um, and we live in a different world because of technology, but I still see it. I still see it in my family. I still see it in, in the community where people have these ideas of, of what it means to be X, Y, or Z, which are off kilter, or they don't have those ideas at all. And in my, my family's mixed family, right? I have people in my family who identify as, as Polish, as Cuban, as Irish, as African American, as Black, uh, because, you know, we've been here for a very long time. And, you know, many people in my family have married people from other. Um, Right, groups, ethnic groups, and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very rich and different dynamic. Yet I see the impact of what we call assimilation, and assimilation for some people means a a, a good thing. Yet for others, it's like, no, nah, be careful because you're going to be robbed of parts of your identity that belong to you. Happened to the Irish, it happened to the Germans, to the Italians, to the Polish, to, right? I, I know a lot of people who are from those subjects. 
You don't speak German? No, I don't. Would you like to? Yeah, but what happened in your family? And I would say, you know, my family wanted the best for us. So they imposed that we all speak English because that's what's going to get us ahead. It's very interesting, right, how that happened. Now, these days, who gets to go to bilingual education? Who gets to go to learn a different language? It's people who have um, dollars, right? It's the affluent folks who can send their The same people who say English only, and the same people who send right <laughs> their, their kids to, to learn different languages, right? Um, all of that to me is so interesting, right? And, and so we're talking substance use and mental health issues and all of that. I see all of that stuff interconnected, right? Because it has to do with identity. It has to do with identity. Yeah, I couldn't agree more in here. Yeah. It's interesting because we had, again, sort of inverted experiences where I, I, everybody thought that I could speak Spanish. And so my whole life, I was so resentful of that, that I was like, then I'm just never going to learn it. I'm going to prove to you that I'm a good, you know, person here because a, a, a good, you know, version of a Latino doesn't speak Spanish. They know English well enough to be able to speak it and do it well. And so I'm going to prove to you that I don't, I'm not going to give you, you know, your little, because ultimately people were asking me stuff like that with, you know, their microaggressions. It was people just assuming I spoke Spanish that I still get the questions today. Like, oh, so where are you from? And then I say Milwaukee. And it's, but where are you really from? But where were you born? And those little microaggressions, I get them all the time and they're so aggravating. And so I was like, well, to reclaim my power and, and not let you have the, the joy of having me say, yes, I do speak Spanish. I'm going to not learn it. So I can say no. And then you've asked uh, what I viewed as like a pretty rude racist question. And I get to kind of trick you back and say like, no. But in the long run, it just hurt me because I wish that I knew Spanish now. <laughs> like I wish that I, if I had access to that language, I could engage better with different spaces. And that was highlighted when we were, you know, we were in all of us in Puerto Rico for work a couple months ago. And it was, it made me sad to be there because I couldn't engage with anybody and I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't have any sort of even Romaldi shared history with, with the group of people who the, I was finally in a space where they all looked like me. Uh, and I got to be part of the kind of majority community, but not actually participate in it. Um, and then I've struggled as well with, with, you know, feeling frustration at having to kind of shed a lot of that culture, not having access to it, while also recognizing the enormous privilege and benefits that came with all of the access that I had to, you know, really strong uh, education through high school uh, my, my family sent us through manners classes to learn how to sit properly and speak properly and, and shake hands and do all the things you're supposed to be able to do to engage professionally very effectively. And that has helped smooth my entrance into professional spaces, even my name. People think that I am German when they look at my name uh, or that I'm a white person. And so it gets me in the door. There's not that fear of, of, of a quote unquote ethnic sounding name or, or a person of color name. And so then I show up and they're like, well, he's already here. And having to hear that all the time, I, I recently had somebody say, I, when I met them in person for the first time after coming off of Zoom, they said, I didn't realize you were Latino because you look so much lighter on screen and because you don't have an accent when you speak to us. I never would have believed that you were Latino. And having to hear that, of course, as in my opinion, more than a microaggression, but also recognizing that that probably benefited me, the fact that I don't have an accent and can speak very eloquently and well 
probably help this older white person feel safer and more able to hear what I had to say. And so trying to balance all those pieces together has been tricky as well over time. Because people tell me that a lot. You're so eloquent. You can speak so well. And I'm like, but do you mean that? Or do you mean that I just sound like like well-educated white person? Because those are two different things, right? Uh, and so it's been untangling those pieces has, has, has been a long learning process. You know, you know, Tim, when um, I, I've made that mistake with other people around my own assumptions of who they are and what should they be like, that sort of thing. So I, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who walks into a room and looks around, particularly when I don't know anyone there, right? So I, I look first for what for what everyone does, I think, in, in my head, the physical, right? That, that physical thing and make a judgment based on that. Where am I going to sit? Who am I going to talk to? Blah, 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 right? It gets closer, and then we meet people, and I go, like, oh, okay, this person, okay, this person might be Latino, Latinx, Hispanic, however it is that people want to identify. And so my my approach has been, on many occasions, I've learned how to do this better now, right? Um, it, 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 but it has been to like say a few words in Spanish to see you know the reaction right um, or to ask the person where are you from and then uh, you know again I have family you ask the kids in my family well, I'm from here that deal I'm I was born in Springfield I'm from Springfield so so what are you and I'm American okay interesting so I had to learn that but after making a whole bunch of assumptions and mistakes with people. And then I've had to reflect on why people do that, right? And, and for me, has been, because we're looking for some type of connection with people, right? Uh, I'm looking for a specific type of connection with people. And the assumption behind that is you're going to be able to understand me. And you're going to be able to support me. And... Um, I say this in training all the time. I've met some real assholes who are Latino as well. <laughs> just because you are, right? Um, or just because you can speak a language. And I say this to people in training all the time. I say, you know what, Ed? Um, I'm willing to go and learn a language and blah, blah, blah. And they go, right? And they're really excited about it. I go, you know what? Um, and, and so what do you think, Annette? I said, treat people with decency and respect that'll get you more than speaking a language because people are assholes in every single language that you can imagine including the language that i speak which brings me to the next point right we don't all speak the same and i i'm amazed what, what in training i do this all the time i ask people how many of you think i have an accent and all most hands go up right and then I go, no, I don't have an accent. You have an accent. You just can't hear your own accent. You can hear mine, right? So to your point around accents, right, and how we treat people based on that, you you hear it. I tell people all the time, watch the news and watch when the 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 that professional person who's been trained in interviewing people, watch how they change when they perceive an accent. They talk louder and slower and change the words, the intonation and all of that. And then on the receiving end, what does that feel like, right? For me, it always feels like you're condescending. I understand what you're saying. Why, why you have the need to to speak louder at me or speak? You know, the, I I understand what you're saying, and if I don't, I have the ability to ask, right? Um, but 
the, the, the whole thing about connection and why we do what, what we do, right? Again, I say this to people all the time because these are things that I notice, right? When you walk into a room, you see who's sitting with whom, right? There's segregation that people do on their own. And then there are these funky tables, right? Where some people <laughs> said, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it differently. I'm, I'm sitting with this group or I'm sitting with that group. And I've sat at all of those tables to experience what that looks like. Um, and it's, those conversations are, are extremely interesting in terms of how we connect or disconnect from one another, right? connect or disconnect from one another. I say this to people all the time. Because, so do you speak Spanish? I said, what makes you think that all Latinos or Hispanics or Latinx people speak Spanish? In Guatemala alone, people speak 23 languages, and most of them are native languages. So what makes you think? The largest country, 200 million people in Brazil don't speak Spanish. Many of them do and understand it. Their first language is a form of Portuguese, right? This whole worldview of who is supposed to fit in what box, right? Around many different things, categories of race, ethnicity, categories of language, of culture, of this, that, and the third. Um, I've learned not to make assumptions, but I continue making assumptions because they're part of life and sometimes they get me into trouble um, and sometimes they don't, but it's part of what I need to continue to do with myself so that I, I don't make people feel uncomfortable, right? Um, but do they happen in my head? Of course. Assumptions are a part of who we are as human beings. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, what you brought up, Mahinia, like Because for me, it looks... The response for me is different based on who's asking or doing these things, right? If it, if it is another mm -hmm. Latino person who's coming up to me to speak Spanish, or like when I was living in Milwaukee and was on the South side, which is primarily where the Latinx communities were, and people were viewing me as part of the community or wanting to engage with me in, in Spanish, it was exciting. It made me feel good. I felt like, okay, this person trusts me enough to want to speak this, this other language with me, you know, in, in a public space or at a conference or whatever. Then I'm like, cool, I appreciate that you trusted me enough to want to do this. But when it's somebody else from another, uh, another group who's, who's, you know, coming in with that that question of where were you born? Where are you really from? How did you get here? Then I don't want it. I don't want those questions then from somebody else. So I think it it also gets to that idea of, you know, who gets to ask what to whom and how do these groups interact with each other? You know, what's okay for somebody else who's a part of the Latinx community to say or do with me is different than how other other racial demographic <laughs> groups get to interact with me. It looks it looks different. Um and I think that that's really important context as well to give that it might be okay for, for, for one of us to, to say or do it to me. It's not okay for you. Um, and then, you know, having to have the, those conversations with the other, the other groups that they are, don't like to hear about why it's not okay uh, and why they can't just say or do whatever they want. Um, but I want to name, I just wanted to name that too. Yeah, and and in organizations that's really interesting, right? Because I have been part of organizations where they're looking to check boxes, right? And so <laughs> that that's so uncomfortable for me, right? Uh, forgive the language there, but it is really uncomfortable. It's like, what is it that you're trying to get at, right? Are you trying to get to know me, 
right? Who I am, that sort of thing, or are you trying to, right? You know, check these boxes off and and don't include me in that because that's really really uncomfortable. And sometimes I I have not known how to respond well to that other than to leave. <laughs> and then sometimes I I've really been abrupt in terms of what I've said. And then other times, especially early on in my career, I didn't. I didn't know how to navigate that well, right? So for me, my life has always evolved around having people that I can trust, mentors, people close to home who understand me, that I can, and, and not all of those people are an folk always, but those are people that I can trust and I can come back to and process my experiences, right? And so, um, and a lot of people, of course, do this all of the time. We have a meeting where all this stuff is being discussed, and then we have a meeting to debrief that meeting. And it's all about, did I, really? Did that happen? Let me tell you how I'm really feeling about this. And then that serves as a place to sort of recharge batteries and say, okay, now I can go back in. <laughs> now I can go back to, into these spaces because. I have to. I don't, I don't live on an island, right? I, I have to process some things, understand them, and then go back in. I think about having said that, so many people who don't have that, what happens to them? Right? What happens to them? And I know many people who have been labeled a certain way, right? Resistant, antisocial, a whole bunch of negative connotations around who they are because they're experiencing that constantly. People call microaggressions, aggressions, it's racism and bullshit, um, if you ask me. But if you don't have a place where you can go or places or people that you can go and connect with to sort of process some of that stuff, like understand it, and then recharge, move back in, Right? And, and do whatever it is that you decided to do um, with that. Uh, it, it's really challenging. It's really challenging. When people ask me, because I get that question all the time, you're successful. How have you been able to manage that? Like, Man, that's a huge question. I don't know exactly what you're asking, but I, I know that the experience is really messy. Right? And I, besides, I don't see myself as that really successful person anyway. Right, because of everything that we talked about here, but I think about that, um, and especially when I, you know, at this age and this many years doing this type of work, I still experience all of that going into any new space. I just do, and 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 now through Zoom, I'm looking at who's in the room, what do they look like. It's more difficult than when you're in person, right? Because for me, anyone can be Latinx, Latino, Hispanic, um, because my family looks like everyone in this room and then some, right? Um, so to me, there's no this, in my head, there's not this box that the media tries to portray that, some groups try to portray that, you know, that you watch Spanish language TV, you don't see a lot of black people, you don't see a lot of brown people, indigenous people, it's this, 
you know, box that we're trying to, to fit, but not in my life, not in my world, not with the people that I have grown up with who are in my family. Um, it's, it's, it's a very different experience. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily go, go around trying to correct people about all of this stuff either. I just, I, I, I pick and choose what I need to do and then I need to move on because this can be exhausting as well you know yeah it could become a 24 7 i mean a 25 8 job really unpacking all of this and quote unquote teaching <laughs> yeah I'll, ju I'll just say i'll just say one more thing to what tim just said right so we, yeah. we went to that conference in puerto rico when i arrive in puerto rico that's it i'm puerto rican and that's it i don't need to think about the police i don't need to think about that that if i'm you know puerto rican i just am i just am and that transition takes me a few hours as soon as mm -hmm. i get there and we were in san juan and i hated it because for me that's not puerto rico right it is a part of puerto rico that the tourists see i wanted to like yeah. escape yeah. and leave right because you know that 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 push and pull for me was forever present um yeah. when i was in the conference and the points in time where i was out and we did some listening sessions where i was out puerto ricans from the island naturally sort of was like yeah mm -hmm. you know, this is where i feel most at home but as soon as i get back to the airport as soon as i arrive here i think about being puerto rican every single day I just have to. There's, I don't have the luxury of not experiencing what I experience, right? I was driving yesterday. I haven't gotten in my car today, but I was driving yesterday. Listen, I, I was in my car, and there was a cruiser behind me, and here I am, legal as all hell, right? Because I know that, right? But there I am with my hands on the thing going like, I hope it doesn't pull me out. I hope it doesn't pull me out. Looking for the market. He's white, he's white, he's white, he's white. Let me see who his partner is. And probably these guys were not even thinking about me at all. But there I was, right, with a, with all, you know, thinking. I, I looked at my inspection sticker, which, by the way, um, expires in December. <laughs> all of that shit going through my head. I go, I, I, I go to Puerto Rico, I don't think about any of that crap. I'm just in my car. Um <laughs> But I think that sort of emotional burden is something that isn't really discussed a lot, or maybe a little bit more now, but especially in the way that that contributes to like, for me at least, that was a big piece that contributed to me using substances and having significant mental health challenges was that I was perceiving myself a specific way and the world was perceiving me differently and treating me differently. And so I was experiencing racism and all these different things. And the communities that I was in were almost entirely white and were saying, no, you're not. That's not happening. You are not viewed that way. You know, you don't need to be worried about these things because you're from this, this specific suburb, which is, is wealthy upper middle class. So you don't need to think about those things. But then in my day to day life, I was experiencing them and being told that I wasn't. And it contributed to significant distress and confusion and you know, fear and isolation that then contributed to using substances. And part of my sort of healing journey, I guess, has been like reclaiming the the sort of 
power that for me was associated with saying, you know, I am a Latino person and I do experience these things and that is correct. And I'm going to tell you that you're wrong now. If you tell me that I'm not experiencing those things, you don't get to say that to me anymore. Because for a long time, it felt like because I wasn't raised in the culture and I couldn't really speak to those experiences that I wasn't allowed to say that I was Latino or that I was a person of color. But like, well, if I say those things, it has a specific connotation and they don't line up with my experiences. So if I say those things and I'm misrepresenting myself or misrepresenting the community, and I've had to do a lot of internal work to say, your experience was different than somebody who was raised in the culture and raised in community. And it still counts. And you still have some of these experiences. And a lot of that was through my work with the adoption community. I, like I mentioned earlier, I was able to connect with an organization called Adoption Mosaic that is specifically by people who were uh, transracially adopted for people who are transracially adopted. And what that means is you're a person of color who was adopted into a white family, or you're a white adoptee who was adopted into a, a family of color. Your races just don't match. Um, and so learning about what that was like and then being able to be in community with those folks who had the same experiences and we're also just like reclaiming this idea that I, I am a person of color and I have experienced racism and it's okay for me to say that um, has been really, really powerful and, and not having had the chance to do that growing up played a major role in why I was so distressed. But then also having to balance that with saying, you know, Hania, you were talking about like having to check a box. For me, a lot of my experience has been people having me around or hiring me and then being able to say, well, we're checking off the box of having a Latino person or a Latinx person. And then me kind of having to go into the room and saying, you're right, I am Latino. However, if you want someone who can really speak to like this community's experiences or this culture, you need to speak to somebody else. And so recognizing the limits of my own experiences too, of saying I am adopted and that means that this looks different. You still get to claim membership to this community. However, if you want these specific experiences, you need to bring in somebody else. Um, and, and balancing all those pieces comes with a lot of emotions, but has been very important for me as well to say, you guys aren't off the hook for acting like you've got this community represented just because you've got me. You don't get to act like that means that you know what it's like to to go through what Hinir went through or what, or what other people in this country have gone through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's been really important to me as well as to create that space of recognizing that like there's a diversity of these experiences while also showing up in uh, mental health and substance use training spaces or professional spaces that say, you know, we're building out these materials for Latinx communities and then getting to ask, like, well, what are you doing for the people who are adopted who are from this community and don't have that lived experience? How are you tailoring these trainings for me and for my community and for the larger diaspora that maybe doesn't share that same experience? You guys are looking at one specific group, but we're broader than that. Um, and so it's been interesting and, and exciting for me to get to show up and, and kind of feel empowered enough to ask those questions and to name like I have these experiences, but not these. And this is how the community can look better if we have a diversity of voices rather than putting the onus all on one person. Mm-hmm. So to that um, to that point, Tim, you make me think about the following. And there are plenty of people who misrepresent groups, right? Um, and they they walk straight into that role. Let me tell you what it is to be X. In this case, we're talking about Latinos, Hispanics, or Latinx um, folk. Uh, I'm very careful with that because I know that you know we are very diverse, 
And there's a lot of different opinions. And when you get to travel the country like we have done, we get to experience and see that, right? And and some places are so narrow-minded that they want you to represent that, whatever that is, right? And for me, that that is impossible to do. Do that, you know, even though I was born in Puerto Rico, I didn't grow up there. So I grew up here. Right. Um, I can speak Spanish. Yes, but I speak a very specific type of Spanish from the Caribbean. Can I understand most people who are speaking Spanish? Yeah, but it, but but it's not that easy as people think because it's not right all the same. Um, and then there's this whole idea of who's here and why. Right? How many states, current states, were not part of Mexico? We go into those communities, and I have been into those communities where people say, no, I'm, a, I'm American, born and bred. My family has been here for generations, blah, 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 blah. And my assumption, going into many communities, like, okay, these communities have been treated this way, this way, this way, this way. They are progressive. They are Democrats. They are leaning left, that sort of thing, and pa, right in my face, like, nope, not here, dude. We are more Republicans than the Republicans, and you are a problem. <laughs> um, you know, so you know that comes with talking about this as well, right? In, in terms of saying, assuming, painting with a broad brush that we're all the same, it's not. And so I don't step into that space of of saying, well, yeah, let me tell you, I can cite some of the stuff that's in the literature around cultural elements that are applicable to um, many, not all, Hispanic, Latino, Latinx people, and that should have been, but some of those cultural elements are also applicable to other cultures, to other communities as well, right? And so what I tell people is, listen, um, if you come across anyone who wants to be all things to all people, you walk away briskly and don't believe everything that they're telling you because they're going to get it wrong. It's 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 impossible to do. It, it, it just is. It's complicated. What is possible to do is to have an open mind, to meet people, to have a conversation, to learn from them, to ask some questions, and then to take that information with this in mind. This is one person who told you this information. When you go to the next person, don't approach you with all that information in the forefront, you're going to have it with you as well, but that information feeds biases and judgment. So be very careful when you're, all of our biases and judgments when you walk into the next relationship with whomever, because then you're going to learn some stuff there. I say this to people all the time. I'm, I live in the Northeast, in Massachusetts, and people assume here that I'm Puerto Rican or Dominican. That's the assumption. When I'm in Miami, people assume that I'm Cuban. When I'm in Los Angeles, people assume primarily that I'm Mexican, right? And when I'm in the Midwest, somewhere in Chicago or something like that, he might be a mix of Puerto Rican and, and, and Mexican because, you know, so there's all of these assumptions of who we are that are very superficial, right? Yet there's all of this diversity amongst all human beings because this is true for any other group as well, right? You, there's a lot of diversity. How many times haven't I made a mistake thinking, you know, walking into this place? Like I've been to the South many times to, to train, to, to, to conferences, to meetings, and that sort of thing. I live in the North. My stereotypical way of thinking about the South is be careful. No Republicans. 
all right, they're all this, that, and the third. And so I, I bend to the south in front of you know white folk, and I'm going, this is this is not going to go well. And and they are some of the most progressive people that I've met. And I go like, holy shit, right? It's so you know, back to to assumptions. I, I I've learned that in practice, what some people would call the hard way. But I've also learned it from just reading and studying and just being with people, being with people, not to make those assumptions, even though that is impossible to do. I go back to that, always owning that, because assumptions are part of my life, right? So how do I suspend judgment and bias, um, and how do I catch myself before I even do it? Before I walk into that space and say, I mean, remember this, this, and this, and this, and this. Easier said than done, but it is possible. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Thank you so much, Tim and Hanier, for everything you shared today. I know it's easier to talk about all these things in kind of a, a removed intellectual way. And so I know when you're talking, when you bring that down to like a personal, this was my experience, this was my hurt, this was my healing. Um, takes a lot more strength. And so thank you for being willing to share that with me and our listeners. Is there anything? Thank you, Shannon. Yeah. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Tim, for sharing and for hearing you in, in this way and listening to your your experience, right? Um, your views, you know, mm -hmm. just teaches me about connection. So I appreciate the two of you for the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, you guys as well. This was really nice. Mm -hmm. Before I uh, hit stop recording, is there anything you'd want to share? Like, hey, if you want to know more about this, go read this book or go do this. Or if you want to talk to people, here's a nicer way to do it. <laughs> nicer, uh, better. I don't like the word nice. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, reading and educational materials people can explore. I, I mentioned them earlier, but I will always recommend Adoption Mosaic as a really excellent resource to learn more about what uh, transracial adoptees with a specific focus on Latinx communities um, are doing and, and want to work on and, and what our experiences are like. Of course, they don't represent everybody, but they are a really, really excellent resource. But besides that, I would I would just go back to, you know, underlying peer support principles. And Hanir just talked about it as well, but really learning how to connect with each person individually when you start working with them, when we start working with each other, both the people we're providing services to and each other as professionals, and doing your best not to make assumptions that you know about someone's experience based on what they look like or what communities they're telling you a part of, that you're learning how to create the space for each of us to tell each other what our experiences were as part of larger communities. That's, that's how I would say we're really going to move into a space where we can connect with each other uh, as genuinely as possible. I, I, if there's a book that I would recommend, um, war, war on All Puerto Ricans, I, I would I would recommend that people read that. Um, more than anything, and just to add to what uh, Tim just said, is the following. Be if you want to learn about people, be prepared to share about yourself. Nice. Because if not, then it's an interrogation. No one likes those. No one. I don't care where you're from. No one likes anyone in front of you asking you a barrage of questions about this, that, this, and that, and this, and that. The conversation is 
multiple streets. And what I tell people is that if you've been trained in the health and human services field, this is not about me. This is about you. Keep the focus on yourself. We want to ask people a whole bunch of questions. And then when they ask us a question, if we get bent out of shape, that's not going to lead anywhere. That's not a relationship. That's not a conversation. That's an interrogation. And so if you want to get to know people, engage in a conversation, which means that you too get to share. If you're not willing to do that, don't place yourself in a situation to ask a whole bunch of questions because what you're going to get is what you deserve, resistance. You're going to get people who push back. You're going to get people who are not going to give you all of the information or even factual information. Because I remember being on the receiving end of a whole bunch of questions. And then I start messing with people. Like, I'm not going to answer this. Or I'm going to answer it this way. Or I'm going to not answer it all. And they might go back and say, yeah, we had a, I gathered all of this information. I'm sitting over here like, yeah, whatever. Right? So... Be sure to be, be be ready to share about yourself and think about what you want to share, right? Because we all should, um, but be ready because it, it, it's not going to go over well if we approach it in that way. And I think that in our field, when I talk about our field, I'm talking about substance use disorders, right? Mental health field, that sort of thing. We're pretty much trained to interview people interviewing quotations, right? It's like a whole bunch of questions that we ask people over and over and over and over again. And those questions tend to re-traumatize people or, you know, activate people to feel defensive and to feel the way that they should be feeling because that's the situation that they're in. So for me, it's about that. Be ready to share about yourself. Have a conversation, right? Leave all of this noise and tools behind you can go back to that if, if at some point like, treat people as human beings dignity and respect is at the center of it. thank you for connecting with us listeners our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery please join us again next month on recovery talk you can find our episodes on our website peerrecoverynow.org That's peerrecoverynow.org or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.